And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. It's a short passage, but there is a there's a lot in there. Trust the Lord will guide our time together in this in this these few verses in our time together. Now we're we're moving now into chapter 16 of Matthew. It's a it's a it's a pinnacle uh, chapter, very important chapter in in Luke's or in in Matthew's gospel. This is where um, Jesus is concluding his ministry there in Galilee. It's uh, it's kind of the culmination where where Jesus I mean, he'd been withdrawing with the twelve. Uh, back in chapter 13, he began talking in parables, and he had pulled them aside, and he explained a little bit about what those parables meant. He was informing them, and in, in chapter 16, we see that he's preparing his disciples for their for the journey to, to Jerusalem that will soon be coming. In fact, he begins in, in this chapter, he tells them about when they, when they get to Jerusalem, that, that he himself would be brought before the, the chief priest, the 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 scribes and, and would be put to death and he would be buried and then three days later would, would rise again. This chapter we see uh, the light come on for Peter when they're asking about who Jesus is and he, he asks Peter and he says, you are, you are the Christ or you are the Messiah, son of the living God. It's a huge, huge statement. In this chapter, is the first time the word church is mentioned. Jesus, at the end of this chapter, he defines what a true disciple looks like. He says it's, it's a one who denies himself. It's one who takes up his cross and follows me. It's, a, it's really a monumental chapter. And what, what I wanted you to do, I want you to visualize with me for a second to kind of kind of go back and see where Jesus has been. Let's, let's for a minute kind of pretend this this pulpit is the Sea of Galilee, and over here is uh, Nazareth. Jesus had come to his hometown. He had preached in in Nazareth, and they they didn't they didn't accept him, and so he left there and he came over here to the, to the Sea of Galilee, and he he made his way up to the northern part. Some think that he even went across the Jordan River. Just across there, still a Jewish area, and and that's where he fed the five thousand. After he finished, he he had his disciples get back into the boat, and he sent them across the Sea of Galilee. And remember, he he joined them along the way by walking out there uh, by foot. Had the, the the winds were blowing, they couldn't get across, and Jesus showed up. They make their way finally to the other side here, uh, back, and they uh, to Gennesareth. And there, a lot of people came. They br- they brought the the sick and the lame, and Jesus had compassion op- upon them, and he and he healed many of them. While he was there, he had a confrontation again with uh, 
the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he makes his way, he leaves that area and he departs and he goes up to, to Tyre and to, to Sidon. This is uh, um, today's Lebanon. And there he meets the, the Canaanite woman, the woman with, with great faith, and he heals her daughter. From there, he, they, he and the disciples, they, they come down now to the, to the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, and they go down to the, to the southern part, um, where today is the um, Golan Heights. Uh, in the Bible, it was considered the, the, the Decapolis. And there he, um, he, he healed a lot of the uh, people again as they brought the lame, the, the sick. And again, these were primarily Gentile folks. After that time, he, he, he made his way back up to the, to the upper part of the Sea of Galilee, and this is where he fed the 4,000. Again, primarily a, a Gentile crowd. Then they get in the boat. He dismisses the crowd. He gets in the boat, and they go across the sea, and he makes his way now to Megadon, which is where we find our text today. Sea of Galilee. So here you have Galilee. Down south is Samaria, and then south, even further than that, is Judea. And soon he'll be making his way, journeying down to, to Jerusalem. Verse 1, we read, it says, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. Here we see a, a group, these, these guys, Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they've come up from Jerusalem. Now, there's, a, there's an article, the word the is before the word Pharisees, but it's not, it's not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're kind of grouped together. Some think that these, these guys were a, um, a collection of what's known as the Sanhedrin. These were the, the official uh, Jewish leaders. They, there's 71 of them. They hung out in, there in Jerusalem. And this was a representative group of them to go. And they were, I mean, they were waiting for Jesus. They come across and they're there. These Pharisees and Sadducees were really an unlikely team, an unlikely team. They didn't, they didn't like each other. I mean, there's peanut butter and jelly. There's peanut butter and honey. I like peanut butter and bacon. These guys were like peanut butter and pickles. And they just do not go together. I mean, these, these guys, um, um, they, I won't say they're enemies, but they were on, they were polar opposites. See, the Pharisees of that day, they were, they were the common class and they held to a very strict observance of the law. Uh, their zeal for the law, um, uh, and, and, and hunger to make, make sure it's right. They, they added to the law and they had myriads of, of, of uh, regulations that had to be followed in order to live according to the law. And they would press these upon the people. Yet they, they still believed in miracles. They, they believed in inspired revelation. They, they believed in a, in a Messiah that would come. These guys oversaw the, the local synagogues all throughout, um, throughout Israel. Sadducees, on the other hand, they, these guys were, they were the religious modernists or the, the liberals of that, of that day. They were a wealthy aristocrats. They were, they were more interested in their political positions than, than really even biblical fidelity. 
They made their money overseeing all things having to do with the temple. So you remember, um, you know, when Jesus goes and he's scattering the, the money changers there in the temple, the Sadducees would, would be over that. They, they received a lot of money from all the things that happened there at, at the temple. These guys would um, kind of put aside the, the word for their own political advancement to make sure that everything they, you know, whatever government was in power, they would kind of morph uh, to be in good, good rights with, with whoever is leading. They didn't believe in miracles. Uh, they were naturalists. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They did believe in a Messiah. It was a little bit different. This guy was going to be a political leader. So really, these guys, it was, it was bad blood between them. Really bad blood. I can imagine these guys walking up from Jerusalem, making that trek. You had the Pharisees on one side of the road and the Sadducees on the other side of the road. And every once in a while, they'd kind of look at each other. They'd be commissioned to go up and, and find Jesus. But, you know, there was, they had come together because there was a common threat. There was a common threat to their, really their religious way of life. For the Pharisees, Jesus was a, a threat to their, to their religious practices. For the Sadducees, Jesus was a, a religious threat to their position. You've heard the, the saying, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's kind of what, what these guys were. They were coming after, after Jesus. Here's the deal. Their, their religiosity, their politicism, it caused them to miss Jesus or miss the Messiah. You know, we read this passage and you think Pharisees and Sadducees, and you, can, well, you kind of dismiss it. You think, well, you know, I'm not one of those kind of guys. I mean, that was kind of back then. We disassociate from these groups, and we're easy. I mean, I read this, and I go, man, these guys were just, man, these were hypocrites. But we have to check our hearts here. In fact, I like what David Platt, he's, in his commentary on Matthew, he, he puts it like this. And this is his quote. He's, he writes, uh, well, there's a lot to criticize about the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, we should be able to see in them a reflection of tendencies in our own hearts. He says, if we're honest, we, we can see ourselves in these two extremes. Some of us love to adjust or even break the rules in order to prioritize our own pursuits in this world. While others of us try our best to live nice, decent, moral, and even religious lives. He says, part of the point of this story in Matthew 16 is that both of these approaches entirely miss who Jesus is. See, the, the heart of a Pharisee shows up in our own lives, in my life, in your life, when, when our own traditions and religious practices are our isms shine brighter than Jesus. A couple of, a couple of years ago, I was visiting with a young guy I, I'd met, and he had graduated from a, a Christian college. He was going to go into the ministry, a different denomination, and he was, we were, we were talking about different things, and also we, we got into this discussion about um, uh, translations, and he was sharing with me how the NIV and the ESV and really all the other translations other than the King 
James Version were illegitimate. Like, oh, really? He just, I mean, he kept hammering away. I began to get kind of frustrated. I began to talk about I was leading worship. And so then we get, get up in this conversation about worship. And he says, well, you know that um, you know, all instrumentation, that was an old covenant thing. So that's, you know, in the New Testament, we're in the New Covenant. You know, like Old Testament things like burnt sacrifices and ephods and instrumentations in worship. That was back then. And, you know, in the New Testament, it's those, those things have passed away. He said, really, true worship is worship that has no instrumentation. It's all a cappella. And I was like, man, I'm starting to get fired up now. I'm a pianist. I lead. I'm like, what is this? I mean, for the next hour, he and I are kind of going back and forth. It was all about what we believe, our thoughts. and I mean, it was a good discussion, but I, I look back and go, man, for an hour or more, I'm, I'm having this conversation with, guy, with this guy, and neither one of us even talked about Jesus. <laughs> we missed it. And maybe, maybe we don't have quite those conversations, but we all have our practices, our beliefs that we elevate higher than we should. You know, it might be a preaching style. We preach expositionally, unlike those other people. No. It might be a worship preference. Maybe it's a a particular doctrine that we kind of elevate and kind of hold on to. Even a personal opinion about how church should be done. Here's the deal. If we're not careful, these things become... I mean, they're good things. They're, they can be right things, but they can add a, uh, really overshadow the, the object and person of our worship. And we end up, we end up missing Jesus, just like I did in that conversation with that friend. Pharisee heart. The Sadducees on those, they were self-indulgent. They were consumer-driven. I think today, a lot of times in churches, or we become so interested in in consumerism, we try to attract people. We try to create things so that people will will come be a part of us. I was I was reading an article this past week. Um, it was talking about how churches use consumerism, and they were kind of going back and talking about some of the the techniques that churches had done during the Easter. Uh, one of the churches that talked about they were. They used Easter and they promoted it with the theme of the popular show, The Walking Dead. They were going to have zombies in the service. You're like, oh, wow. I was trying to picture that, how that would actually look at Easter. (laughs) There was another church that um, was offering $5 Starbucks gift cards for everyone who came that Sunday. We have $5 gift cards for all the fathers as you leave here today. No, I'm just joking. Another church in a neighboring state, uh, they were giving everyone who attended a chance to win, and this is, how, this is the quote, several prize giveaways, including 32-inch flat-screen televisions, $50 gift cards, Nintendo Wiis and iPads and more. Consumerism. There are other ways that consumerism and meism gets into the church. I want you to look at this little cartoon thing that I, that I found. You can't read it all. You have this 
guy there, here's the preacher, and he's looking out there, and they all have their signs, their thing. Hey, don't, don't mention hell. It makes, uh, makes me feel uncomfortable. Or, hey, please refer to sin as, as bad choices. You know, it's just, you know, we don't talk about that today. It's kind of negative. But tell me again how, how much, tell me again how much God wants to bless me. Make me feel good. Show me how, how he's going to pour just blessings upon my life. I like the guy there. Remember how much money I give each week? This is how we sometimes hear it. Well, you know those college students, those youth, they don't, you know, they don't give. They don't support this church. You ever heard that one before? Tickle my ears. I like the guy there with the big ears. If you don't do things my way, you can't see, you probably dot, dot, dot. What can Jesus do for me? It's me-ism, me-ism. The heart of the Sadducees, it's, it's selfishness. If we're really honest, we'll, we'll own up to our own selfishness. And it has a tendency to, to creep into every aspect of our lives. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and usually this is why I say, hey, get ready, you're going to get married. And selfishness is at the core. It just it comes up. I mean, you might love this person and, you know, he might love you. And I mean, I mean, hopefully that's the case. I mean, they, you love each other. But here's the deal. Your, your selfishness is going to rise and you're going to have some, you're going to have some of this from time to time because it's just, that's just who we are. We're selfish. It creeps into our marriage. It creeps into friendships. It creeps into our work and our finances and our church. It creeps into our worship. I want you to listen, listen to me. Every, every one of us, every one of us in this room, including me, we've demonstrated the heart of a Pharisee or the Sadducee, or probably both. If we really think about it, if we're honest, we go, man, you know what? I, I, I can't. I can see this. We're all guilty. We leave worship and we're, we talk about, man, how warm or how cold it is. We, 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 we talk about how loud or soft the music is. We talk, we, we talk about, we, we sang, we didn't sing this song. We sang that song. We, we, this wasn't our favorite kind of music. That was our favorite type and so on. What so-and-so is wearing, how long or short the service was. Why John doesn't grow a beard like all the other cool staff. I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you, I'll make this clear. I can't do it. Like right here, it just doesn't happen. And so it would look really funny. That's why. It has nothing to do with manliness. <laughs> well, it's me-ism. Me-ism. It's in us. Me-ism. I'm not pointing the fingers at anybody here today because I'm looking at my own life. I have my own isms, me-isms. But when we let those things shine too brightly, what it does, it robs us of seeing and delighting in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't want to miss that. We gather here. We're worshiping. Christ is in our midst. We want to see Him and know Him. We want to savor Him. We want to worship Him. This unlikely team came with their self-righteousness and their self-indulgence and they missed Jesus. They missed the Messiah. 
Let us not miss Jesus. I like what Paul writes to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though who he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Oh, God, that we would have the same mind, that we would put our isms and our meism aside. We would consider others more important than ourselves. We would put their interests ahead of our own. For the glory of your, of Christ. God, do that in our midst. This unlikely team. These guys united together to bring an unfortunate test to Jesus. Look at verse one again. It says, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, their agenda is made clear. See, they, they hadn't come to encourage Christ. They, hadn't, they didn't come to dialogue about something out of the Old Testament with Jesus. They didn't, they didn't come to hear his teaching. They came to test him. In fact, this word here is the same word that we find earlier when Satan had Jesus and took him off into the wilderness to test him. It was an evil intent. This is the same word. It's an evil intent. They wanted to discredit him. They, they wanted to humiliate him. They wanted to, they wanted to bring him down and expose him as a fraud. I think it's interesting too how they, how they chose to or sought to test him. They wanted a, a sign from heaven. They didn't want just any little miracle. They, they wanted something, something God-sized, something cosmic, something that, that only God can do. This word heaven or sky, show us a sign up in the skies, up in the heavens. I can hear them. I could probably just dialogue. Something like these guys saying, man, we, we heard about you feeding the 5,000 and 4,000, that's pretty impressive. But why don't you do something cosmic? Why don't you see these clouds up in the sky? Why don't you turn them into bread and let them let it fall to the earth and we'll all eat, all the people of Israel will eat from it and we'll know that you're the Messiah. Or maybe they say something like, man, we, we heard about you walking out on the water. Man, that's quite something. But why don't you give us... A real sign. Why don't you call out to the Sea of Galilee and, and have it just rise up into the sky and, and hover there? Let us see a sign like that and we'll believe that you're the Messiah. Or maybe something like, uh, hey, we heard about you. We heard that you can even calm the storm. How about this one? How about this kind of sign, this, this kind of heavenly sign? Why don't you bring that storm back and let the lightning bolts kind of flash across the sky, the sky and, and, and spell the word Messiah 
And then will believe that, that you are who you say you are. They want some kind of cosmic sign. Give us a God-sized heavenly sign. In the same account in Mark, it says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. He groaned with aspiration. I mean, you can, with exasperation. I mean, you can almost see Jesus. These guys are coming, give us a sign. Give us a heavenly sign. And Jesus sighed. Just a pause. Jesus responds to this unfortunate test. He exposes the blindness of their hearts. I want to look at, look in verse two. It says that he, he answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you, you cannot interpret the signs of the times. See, we, we still use this little maritime proverb uh, today. It says, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. It's interesting that Jesus, he, he chooses to use the same word for sky that, that they said. They give us a, give us a sign, a, a of in the heavens or the skies. Jesus now he brings this sky thought before them. He says that they can they look into the evening sky, they can tell what the weather is going to be like based upon the color. Or they again they can get up in the morning, they look at the sky and they can tell if it's going to be stormy by its color. These guys aren't and they're not Dan Scoff. Has you know they don't have those kind of skills and forecasting abilities, but they could they could look at the evidence, they could see the signs in the sky, and they could understand the weather. Yet they're unable to see the significant times in which they were living in. Here they were standing. Think about this: they were standing before God's own Son, and they couldn't see Him. The Pharisees. These guys had dedicated their lives to the study of the Word, the study of the Scriptures. And there before them was the Word made flesh. They had long and had been anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They couldn't see that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, Lord of lords, was in their very presence. They missed Him. He had healed the sick and diseased. He, he had made, made the, the lame leap, the, the mute mutter, and he had made the sightless see. He'd cast out demons and even raised the dead. Soon he would be crucified, buried. Three days later, raised from the dead. And they would not believe. It didn't matter what he would do. In fact, he says the only sign that, we, that he gives them was, was Jonah. Look at verse eight. Look at verse four. It says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of jo- Jonah. This is the sign. We've heard this a little bit before. If you go back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 41, he had 
He'd been meeting, this, this time it's a group of scribes and Pharisees had come to Jesus and they're asking for a sign. Verse 39 says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be there, or be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up and at the judgment with with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I was reading a a commentary by uh, Douglas O'Donnell. I I love the way he kind of put this. He he, kind of stepped into, into Jesus and was kind of speaking on his behalf. This is how he kind of interpreted this, this sign of Jonah. This is what he writes. He says, do you want a sign, weather watchers of our world? Here's a sign, the sign of Jonah. That's the sign to look for. Remember Jonah, his self-sacrifice when he said, throw me overboard. His burial in the waters. But his deliverance from death, when the fish, this symbol of salvation came and Remember the proclamation to the Gentiles, the Ninevites, these Gentiles of the Gentiles. Remember Jonah. Now look at me. What he did, I am doing and will do. Just watch and see. Watch what I do. Listen to what I teach. See if it fits with Moses and the prophets. See if it fits with the promises of God. See if it fits with the pattern of the prophet Jonah. See, this redemptive message from the life of the prophet Jonah, it was, it was unfolding right before their eyes. I mean, it was right there, the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God's redemptive plan in this incredible time, right, right then. Salvation was coming to fruition right before their eyes. And for them, it was unseen times. They were missing Jesus. And then we can miss him too. We can miss him too. So we live in a world of chaos. I mean, what's, what's going on in the Middle East? We see that stuff in the news and ISIS and all that stuff. It is just, I mean, it's awful. It's heart-wrenching. Here in our own country, Week, I mean, just the, the evils of racism play out in South Carolina and how that ended consequences, horrible consequences. Even when our headlines are about Miley Cyrus and her new girlfriend or Bruce Jenner and his transition to Caitlyn, something's wrong. We look at this and go, man, things are just awfully wrong. In our own city, we had, the, again, the passage of our of this new controversial civil rights ordinance. Look around our city, our nation. We look around our world and, and it can just, it can, it can feel overwhelming. We can get discouraged and at times almost feel hopeless. But yet, even in the midst of wars, in the midst of famines, in the midst of suicide bombers, in the midst of persecution, more moral decay, God's redemptive purposes are not being hindered. God is 
mean, he is sovereignly in control. And he is heralding in the, the coming of, of Jesus Christ. He's on his throne. He's not being caught by surprise in all of this. I like what Luke, and he writes in his gospel, chapter 21, listen to this, and he speaks of the signs of the time. Jesus says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding and what is coming on the world. It feels like that at times. So for the power, the powers of the heavens will be shaken and And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Paul says it like this in Romans 13, 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to, to wake from your sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. And don't get distracted by the circumstances around you or the, the circumstances that you find yourself in, even maybe this very day. Don't be overwhelmed by the disappointments and the discouragements in your home or in your work or in your relationships from the world. God is at work right now. He is at work Jesus is coming soon. Soon he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will pass away. He is coming. We can have hope. These guys had come to test Jesus looking for a sign and they missed him. Sometimes I'll watch the news and I just get kind of, oh man. You know, went down to Baylor this past week, you know, getting Jeremy set up at orientation and just think, man, goodness, I'm glad I'm well beyond these years. And so, man, I need to pray for this guy, pray for our kids. But, man, there is there is hope. Jesus is alive. God is in control, and he is orchestrating his redemptive plan. It cannot be thwarted. Satan is going to be crushed, and Christ is going to be exalted. And not only that, but he is working in your life. Open your eyes, look around you. Don't get distracted. Fix your eyes upon him and see what he is doing. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they missed Jesus. And this section ends with six dreadful words. Look at it there in the end of... Verse 4, so he left them and departed. They had come face to face with the Son of God, Jesus Messiah. Their hearts were so hard they missed him. Jesus turned away and departed. And they stood there like, Their hearts were filled with selfishness and wicked intent. They had given themselves to other loves. 
Jesus lumps them together. He calls them a, an evil and adulterous generation. Their hearts were so hardened. They, again, they miss Jesus. Jesus just turns his back and departs. I think of people I know that don't know him yet. And they're, they're just, they, they're looking for something. They're looking for something else for some kind of sign, looking for something to convince them about this Christianity thing, this Jesus thing. My heart breaks. Just wants to turn to Christ. The day is going to come when he's going to turn away and depart. Worse yet, he's going to, we're going to be standing before him one day, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So what do we take away from, from these four verses of chapter 16? Let me, let me just leave you with a couple thoughts. First of all, don't, don't let me-ism, don't let me-ism cause you to miss Jesus. Me-ism, I don't know if that's a word. I think it fits well. Me-ism. When things are more about me than anything else, it will rob us. It will rob you, rob me of our joy. It will keep us from knowing the fullness of, of life in Christ. At the end of this chapter, Jesus will tell us that we have to deny ourselves. We have to put self aside, deny it. Take up our cross. Take up an instrument of, of death. We have to die to self so that Christ can live fully in us. We have to lose our lives for the sake of Christ. We have to put to death our self-righteousness and self-indulgence and make Jesus the center point of our thoughts and words and deeds. And this doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy. I mean, it's easy to say, man, just make Jesus sinner and everything's going to I know it, it's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a daily dying, a daily taking up our cross. It's a daily saying, God, fill me with your spirit so that I can have Christ at the forefront of all that I do. When you leave our time here this morning, what will you talk about? What will we talk about? I pray it will be Jesus. Listen to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, these Pharisees, disciples, they had this incredible, they were in the times. They, they were with Jesus. But then he's, he's saying here, you, you don't see him, yet you, you love him. You don't see him now, but you believe him. He, let him be central so that we might rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. That's incredible. 
an expressible joy filled with glory that we go out from this place and Jesus is on our hearts. He's on our lips. He's in our minds. He's, he, he goes with us into our workplaces, into our homes. And we, we are with our children. We speak of Christ. As we do, we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And we do it with inexpressible, inexpressible joy. That's what makes the mundane and the difficult a joy. Which leads me to the second point. Take courage. Take courage in your circumstances. God is not far away or disengaged. He's he's near. He's at work. As believers, the, the signs of the times, I mean, they're culminating in your full and complete redemption. He is at work in you, purifying. So in the darkness and the difficulties, take hope. Even in the mundane and the, the weary times, take hope. Sing the song that we sing often. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but Holy lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood, they support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And then with our eyes looking upward, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ is our rock. Lastly, if, if Christ isn't your, if he is not your ultimate destiny, I simply want to implore you to embrace him today. He is the sign of Jonah. He sacrificed himself, delivered himself to death upon a cross. He took upon himself the, the penalty of our sin. He was buried but was raised to life on the third day, triumphing over sin and death. And Jesus himself, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. You can have the fullness, the fullness of life now, now and forever. If you just but turn and, from sin and trust in Christ. heart of the Pharisee. I I don't think any of us are quite like these guys. Self-righteous, self-indulgent. But I look in my own life and I see pieces of it. I see tinges of it. And it gets in the way. 
Oh, that God would rip that stuff away. All of us, I mean, honestly, all of us have a little bit of that in us. And it gets in the way. And we long to be a church that God is using to impact our city. To, we long to be a church where people come and are encouraged and built up, where there's this place feels like family and there's, there's hope, there's joy here. That God is using us to, to touch lives and, and cultures and nations for the glory of God. And sometimes he does it in spite of us. But, oh, if we can get that out, allow him to be more in us, not miss him. I don't want to miss him. I don't want to miss one time. I don't want to miss a second of it. We gather together and worship. Man, this, I mean, Jesus is in our midst. Two or three are gathered. When we gather to pray, Jesus is in our midst. When we fellowship with another brother or sister in Christ, Jesus is in our midst. Don't miss it. Don't miss Jesus. Put self, put it aside. Matthew, he's... What he's doing, he's, he's contrasting all these different people. He's, you've got these Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he, then you have the crowds, and then you have these disciples. And there's a little bit of all of that in us. And he said, man, this is what I want you to, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Run from that. Run from these Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't look like that. Don't even, don't even entertain a little bit of it. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Peter gets it. In this chapter, we're going to hear it soon. You are the Christ. You are the one I've been waiting for. You are the one I treasure. You are the one I want to give my life to. You are the Son of God. You are worth dying for. And he does it upside down on a cross. How about you and me? Will we give our lives for the sake of Christ? Will we come just for our own sake? God, help us. Help us to put me aside. Help me to love my brother and sister and to long to see their interest and their, their joy, long to be my joy. When they weep and when they hurt, I hurt and weep. And as we do that better, God unites us together heart, mind, and soul, and he uses us in ways we have yet to see. And I pray that as the pastor come and if Lord willing brings Brad to us, he'll find a church that has Christ right there. He looks at us and he sees a body that is longing to cry out, you are the Christ Son of the living God, we are here for you. We are ready to go. Father, I, I just look at my own life and, and I am, I'm not there. There's too much me, too much self. It seeps into so many areas of my life, my home, my ministry. God, I, I would ask by the power of your Spirit, it would, 
you would just give me the grace to to crucify it, to to take up your cross, to deny self, and to just go hard after you. God, that you would do that in in this church. We would deny ourselves for the sake of Christ. We would go hard after you, willing to lay aside anything for the cause of Christ. We would give up pleasures, give up resources. We would give whatever it takes. God, wherever you call us, that you might be made much of. God, we don't want to miss you, not even for a second. We don't want to look and say, oh, look at God's doing over there. Oh, God, would you use us? Use us. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for this wondrous cross. We love you. We long to be fully yours. In Jesus' name.